Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucksters? How are you? It's me, Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. My uh, guest is Scott Ian of Anthrax today. Anthrax's new record uh, for all kings is available now. Scott's book, I'm the Man, the story of that guy from Anthrax, recently came out in paperback. Great guy. You know, and I admittedly am not... A guy that knows a lot about metal, but God, I learned and I love this guy. I love Scott Ian. I met him. Well, you're, I'll, I'll talk about this when I'm bringing him up. Bringing him up. Where am I? The comedy club? Holy shit. I'm taping a little later than usual tonight on Sunday night because I watched the Oscars. Because as, as uh, some of you know, as people who have been listening to this show, perhaps for years, I, I do uh, enjoy to suspend any knowledge I have of show business and the personalities involved with show business and the actual business of show business and, uh, and uh, a lot of other things. Uh, you know, the, I want to believe I, in the magic of movie stars. And I do, I try to, I try to, but I, I just, something is fading. I never thought I'd want less transparency uh, when it comes to uh, the truth of a particular business. But uh, in a business that manufactures uh, fantasies and, and uh, powerful uh, uh, illusions that reveal important truths and, and elevate the, the human spirit and uh, heart, uh, I want to know less about it. I, didn't, I don't really want to hear all the jokes about the millions of dollars people make. And I wouldn't have minded a couple more dance numbers. And I, and I do like to not know a lot about uh, my movie stars. I have this reverence for uh, for old Hollywood, even though those people were probably just as rich and just as horrible as some of the people that uh, that exist there now. Um, somehow or another, I just uh, I feel like I know too much now. I, I feel like I I can't be charmed anymore until until I I actually get a nice laugh out of my friend Louis, or I get a nice laugh out of my recent guest uh, Sasha Baron Cohen and and Chris Rock and Tina Fey. And uh, Gosling and Crow were good. And I never thought I'd, I'd miss song and dance numbers, but it's interesting the experience you have. There was something, let me try to get around to this. So I was at the comedy store Saturday night. This, I'll just roll you through it. And, um, you know, and Chris Rock had been running his set there for about a week or so. I'd, I'd run into him a couple of times. I'd watch bits and pieces of it. But I usually just go in, do my work, and get out. Now, on Saturday night, this is an exciting night. 
Louis was in town Saturday night. He was doing uh, two shows, running a new new material at the Comedy Store in the main room. He does that on the, uh, you know, he'll just uh, announce a couple days before and sell out the main room for a couple shows and do what he's going to do. I had a 10.30 spot in the original room down the hall from the main room. I got there about 9.30 with Sarah, Sarah Kane, the painter, the girl. And yeah, we just eating dinner. I went in and it was between shows for Louis. So I went and said, hi, Sarah and I went backstage and he was just there lying there on his back alone thinking we chit chatted for a while. And then Sarah and I left and then, uh, I was going to go down the hall to do my spot. And then the manager, Adam ran up to me and said, Louis wants to talk to you. So I went back and he said, look, Chris was coming down to run his stuff for the Oscars, but it, it doesn't seem like he's coming. So do you want to do it? Do you want to do like 15, 20 in front of me and bring me up? And it's weird because I, you know, uh, I don't, I don't usually uh, open for people, but it's my friend, Louie. It's my home club. I've been feeling good in that room. I'm like, yeah, of course, that'd be a blast. Uh, and it was a packed house. And what ultimately happened was Chris Rock did come and Louie and I said, look, you know, Chris got to do this work. Let him do the work. And, you know, I don't need to go on. And, you know, it was nice of you to ask me, but he's like, no, both of you go on. Both of you do 10. So I went on and I brought Chris on. And then Chris brought Louie on. It was a hell of a night at the Comedy Store, which is a hell of a club. I can't say this enough. That place is the last real shit in this town. It's the last real place uh, to see comedy in, in Los Angeles. It's, it's, you can feel the history. You can feel the place is electric when it's electric. I cannot tell you enough. And to tell, you know, I, just go. Go take it in. It's sort of mind-blowing, man. It's, you, you can feel all of it going all the way back to the 40s so you know i watched chris do this stuff and uh, it was killing it was great getting applause breaks and he presented it as um you know this is the stuff i'm doing tomorrow and he'd been doing all week and it is a testament to i don't know what but to people's uh, decency or perhaps their excitement about being part of the process that you know no one leaked the jokes and you know they still had some weight to them so after watching him do that and knowing that they were both going to be at the oscars and i was going to be on my couch it was exciting to watch for me and to see how those jokes did and to see the process. You know, Chris had a few writers with him. Louie was helping him out a little bit and he was trying to make this thing really resonate and to really ride the line that Chris Rock can ride when he's uh, when he's on the mark. And I, it was interesting, too, that, you know, that there was this balance to be made, you know, between a celebration of uh, of talent and the industry and, and, you know, making movies, making pictures on all levels. And, you know, this sort of stark reality of a certain type of, uh, you know, prejudice. And, and it, even if it's just through negligence, uh, what, whatever, wherever it comes from, it, it obviously exists. And, and Chris had to ride that line. And I think he did it. Uh, he did it beautifully. But then it becomes here was the interesting thing to me is that it was the theme of the night, you know, that, you know, that it had a lot to do with Chris that you know this was going to be the theme of the night the lack of diversity the lack of uh, black nominations the lack of of uh, black actors you know roles being uh, uh, available in hollywood and it's been around for a long time and chris drew attention to that but there is this moment where you know you you think like well you know are they are they uh are they are they hitting it too much you know are is this bit is this theme are they are they um hitting it over the head too much you know, there's this, uh, oh, here's another bit about that. And, you know, there is that instinct to sort of feel that. And I imagine some people will say that. But there was an interesting thing I learned, you know, uh, from doing a, a week with Paul Mooney in Sacramento. You know, 
uh, I was middling for Paul Mooney in Sacramento. I got it has to be 15 years ago. Maybe a little less than that. And he would do two hours, two and a half hours. And I don't know if you know the amazing Paul Mooney, but Paul Mooney is all about, uh, you know, telling uh, white people how racist they are and celebrating it. So there was an interesting thing that I learned about that because no one's going to argue that racism exists institutionally and, and also, you know, socially. Uh, and, and that, you know, certainly there's been progress, but, uh, you know, clearly from the news and from uh, reality and from uh, this, the sole lack of uh, conversation about class in this country, you know, that there's no denying that. So when, when you watch uh, the Oscars and you're like, oh, really, they're doing another bit on this, huh? Aren't they hitting it? Aren't they uh, hitting it too hard? Aren't they overdoing it? You know, this this bit. We get it. We get. There's that notion of we get it. You know, like okay, okay, yeah. But but do you get it? Here's the the thing I learned with Mooney is that you know how he would sit up there. I didn't understand it at first. Like he would do two and a half hours. These were primarily white audiences, and I just don't know why he stayed up there. I don't know why he stayed up there, you know. Uh, and then you know you start to realize it. Now you know I, I talked to him a little bit about it. Is that if you think you're not racist, you know, and you think you're progressive, and you think you're you know, or you don't, uh, you just you don't have that in you. Sit in an audience and watch a black man call you out on it, you know, for two and a half hours, and he's gonna find it in you. He's gonna find it in you. So there is this thing, well, you know, we get it, you know, and that's just, you know, it's like, all right, we get it. And that's just shy of when's this black guy going to shut the fuck up about this? So I don't think that there was too much. And I and I and I think that it, it was important and it did occupy a tremendous amount of the, the proceedings. The venue had become politicized and, and it had to be addressed. And uh, and it was addressed. And but again, I, I think there might have been a balance to be made with some uh, with some fun dance numbers. I wasn't I don't think, you know, necessarily Chris is the host to be involved in that. But they could have uh, they could have uh, done a little more celebrating of, of show business, uh, you know, in the old timey way for 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 this getting old guy for my tastes. You dig. All right. Oh, spotlight. I called that. If you ask my producer, Brendan McDonald. Um, I called it. I said, that's the one to win. And uh, because, you know, it is, it's an amazing movie and it's about a horrendous thing. It's a very graphic and engaged and well-researched and compelling description of what journalism used to look like. It's an important fucking movie for the fact that, you know, what passes as journalism now is ill-referenced, uh, you know, spontaneous um, irresponsible garbage, mostly, mostly clickbait, mostly you know unconfirmed, unsubstantiated. Uh, uh, so when you see what it looks like to take the time necessary to construct a narrative that will reveal a truth that will speak that truth to power and 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 at least shake it at its foundation, if not topple it, it's an amazing thing to watch. And I have not seen anything like that uh, since all the presidents men. And quickly, I'd like to say that uh, my friend, uh, friend of the show, Douglas Rushkoff, has a new book out. If you have a Hal Premium subscription, you can go listen to him on episode 404 of this show, where he talks about the book Present Shock. His new book is called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, How Growth Became the Enemy of Prosperity. That comes out tomorrow, March 1st. 
I like Douglas Rushkoff. He's an exciting thinker, and he's an exciting writer. So I wanted to throw him a little love. But Scott Ian. Now, here's the thing about Scott. Is that, you know, I've been, you know, he's been around the comedy scene for a long time. He's friends with Brendan Small, with Posehn, with uh, AG. You know, like he's around. I see him at these shows we do, the music shows. And I always liked him. Always a nice guy. And people, you know, I always said like, well, come on. But like, I'm always nervous because a lot of times I have musicians on. I'm not a metal guy, really. I mean, I just got into Black Sabbath five fucking years ago. My ex-wife Mishnah was a huge metalhead, and I just was not on board because I didn't grow up with it. But now, over time, you know, I've, you know, as a as a man in his forties uh, and fifties, I'm uh, I'm getting into metal finally. Thank you. And uh, you know, when I, I was just uh, nervous to have Scott on because I, I I didn't listen to a lot of Anthrax, but I certainly did before he came on. I got to say, what a great fucking band! And I had no idea how important they were in metal until I started listening and I started doing a little research and I read a little of Scott's book. And now this guy who was just this nice guy with a funny beard who was hanging around, you know, I realized that he's a very important fucking figure in the history of modern music and in the fucking you know definition of what metal is for in its current state but what i found is that you know i was talking to a another nice jewish kid who chose to live a creative life and uh you know we had a lot in common and and some not in common but he's he's a sweetheart of a guy straight shooter decent dude and uh and the guitar player for anthrax so this is my conversation with uh with scotty sometimes i wish i paid more attention in school or in some cases any attention at all there are probably a lot of things i could have gotten more out of like literature and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics but luckily for us there's a new podcast called the foxed page that dives deep into the best books of all time this is basically like the best possible college english class but more relaxed and fun no pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class it's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author kimberly ford everything from cormac mccarthy to madame bovary from classics like frankenstein to modern hits like lessons in chemistry i love ireland but i missed the boat on james joyce the fox page has a three-part series on dubliners and that's a pretty great starting point want to get the most out of what you read the Foxed page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Scott, I've seen you around for a long time. Yes. We've been planning on doing this for a while. Yep. And you're probably at, there were points where you were probably like, why is Marin blowing me off? No, I never thought you were blowing me off. I know how busy you are. <laughs> I follow you on social media, so uh, I always see who's going to be on, and I'm yeah. like, all right, that guy's bigger than me. Well, the, <laughs> here's the thing. I'll, I'll be honest with you, because I, I feel like I owe it to you to be honest with you, is that uh, as much as I want to be a full-on metal guy, I, I just I missed it. Sure. I missed, like, when you guys were huge, I think I had to be about 50, maybe 10 years young. We're the same age. Right. So I have to imagine when Anthrax got huge, it was primarily teenage dudes, right? Yeah, it was people our age and and younger, obviously. Yeah. yeah. I just somehow, like, I missed it, so I feel insecure. <laughs> like, you know, I, I like you. I've known you. I, the book is great. You wrote a real book. Uh, you know, I went and got all the Anthrax records. Cool. <laughs> you know, I did my homework, right, right, right. But not unlike when I had um, who was it, Maynard in here. Uh-huh. 
I'm a little old to start getting into Tool. Right. <laughs> you know? But I, what I want you to do as we move through it, if you could, I, I need you to, to walk me through not only Anthrax, but you know how what what is the basic? Because look, like I like all the sources of of metal, right? But you guys sort of invented metal, uh, thrash metal, right? One of the bands that they give credit to, yes. So, what are the other ones? Uh, Metallica, Slayer, and Megadeth. What makes th- Exodus is should be in there too? Exodus, yeah, they're also from the Bay Area. What was the shift? Was it the was was thrash metal the first shift out of like Black Sabbath into a new thing? Well, no, because after Sabbath you had, you know, Priest, and then you had Iron Maiden and Motorhead, Motorhead. right? Yeah, and so for us, uh, we liked all that stuff, right? Um, but I would say our generation, certainly for me in New York and the other members of Anthrax, for us, Maiden and Motorhead were the two. Those were the two that I think we felt the most akin to, because you know, Sabbath. That was. For the, I loved Sabbath since I was a kid, but they were even before my time right, in like, a sense. Like you know? Zeppelin. Right. Yeah. You know, Sabbath started putting out records in 1970 or something. I wasn't buying Sabbath records when I was six. You right. Know? <laughs> so it was. It came later. I went back and got, you know, I, I think my first Sabbath record might have been like Never Say Die, and then I went back and got all the catalog. But um, for us, for me, Maiden and Motorhead, that's, they were like, that was my thing. I felt like they were mine. Like the older kids, they they had Zeppelin and Sabbath. We had Priest and Maiden and, and Motorhead. But like when you were a kid, like when you started to get into that stuff, what, at 13 or 14? Yeah, right around there, like seventh grade, whatever that is. They were actually, you know, they were new and they, it was a small audience, wasn't it? I oh, mean, yeah, at, at yeah. that time, like it was sort of like punk rock or like right alongside of it in a way, or maybe that was a little later, but... But it seems to me that Sabbath and Zeppelin and all those fucking bands, you know, they were huge. But like Iron Maiden and uh, and Motorhead were like, you had to find those. You had to go find those records, It was 1980. 1980 really was the year because in that year, the first Maiden record came out and that was the year Motorhead put out Ace of Spades. And I bought both those records that year, knowing nothing about the bands just because I would go through the racks of the, the store near my house yeah, and yeah. the al- album covers looked cool, so I would buy them. <laughs> right. And usually the cool album cover meant the band was great <laughs> at the time. So, <laughs> And, you know, in, in 1980, Sabbath, was uh, they put out Heaven and Hell, so they put out their first record with Dio, which yeah. was amazing. Ozzy was already out. Zeppelin was done, for, I guess, for all intents and purposes. Pretty much. All, I don't know. Like, when did In Through the Outdoor yeah, come right in? around then. Yeah, right? yeah. So... And they, um, they were sort of neutered by that point in a way. Yeah. So for us, Maiden and Motorhead, oh, yeah, and they were small. I mean, Maiden supported Priest their first time in New York, open for Priest at the Palladium. And But we all knew who they were. You know, we yeah, were yeah. all happy to see both bands. And I saw Motorhead open for Ozzy my first time in New York as well. Uh, Ozzy Solo for a solo yeah, tour? Yeah, on uh, Blizzard of Oz. And yeah. we just lost Lemmy. Yeah. <sighs> You know, he says it best every time he would start a show. We're Motorhead and we play rock and roll, and um, that that was his life. That that he lived it and breathed it for seventy years or however many years he was in Motorhead. But yeah, you know what I mean. He 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 was the epitome. You know, I I, I look at him and Ozzy as the two biggest icons in the world of let's say. Although Lemmy always said we're a rock and roll band. Yeah, all us metalheads and all the punk rockers and the hardcore kids and. Hard rock people, it was the one band everyone agreed on. Like, we'd argue all day long about everything else, but Motorhead was the one band every everyone liked. And you, you, you used to hang out with them a lot? 
Yeah, yeah. I met him in 85 in London as a kid going there to do interviews for my second album and and uh, uh interviews uh, what do you mean well like go over to do promo for oh right 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 and, uh, so you're on press tour right yeah right. and uh and you know and then my band started to happen and we would cross paths quite a bit and motorhead were kind enough to take us on tour many times oh yeah yeah so um yeah we get to know each other yeah for sure now when uh so you're gonna go speak tomorrow huh yeah is that gonna be a uh it's gonna be a pretty uh interesting uh attended funeral I think so. Yeah, I think it should be pretty no rock and roll. Heavy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know what? I I was really bummed the night I, I found. I don't know if I'm divulging too much information here, but um, I was actually we have the same management. Yeah, we have for a while. And uh, um, out of the blue, I get an email from uh, my manager Todd Singerman, and he he's been with Lemmy like probably thirty years or something. Oh, really? Like that. And, yeah. Uh, and I get he said I I wanted you guys to hear it first you know, before it goes public tomorrow, but Lemmy's got terminal cancer. Uh, he's got two to six months. And, you know, we were in Woodstock, Pearl and I, and our son on vacation over the holidays. And I get this email and like my heart just sinks. Oh. And I, 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 like Pearl was like just coming out of the shower. I was like, oh my God. And I, I couldn't even read it. I just showed her my phone, yeah. you know, and, and uh, like she started crying and I, I was like just super bummed out. And I'm like, what? You know, and I write him back and, it's kind of this emails back and forth, back and forth for about fifteen minutes. What happened? Blah blah blah. And he's filling me in on all these details and and uh, and I just find myself getting more and more aggravated by, by the whole thing. And uh, you know, I I wrote him back. And I said, you know what? Fuck this. If anyone can defy this, if anyone can defeat this bullshit, it would be him. I yeah, mean, look yeah. Look at the life he's he's lived. You know, yeah. there's no way he's only got six months. And then I I wrote the bottom of the email. I said. Long live Lemmy, fuck cancer, right? Right. 30 seconds later, the reply is, they just called me. He passed two minutes ago. Oh, my God. I, I couldn't, like, I dropped my phone. Like, just, I was in shock. Well, by like, the time they found it, didn't it, wasn't it, like, way, I mean, you know, he had lived, it, my impression was that he was so used to feeling shitty that I don't think he even knew he had cancer. Was, I, I mean, it seemed like it was pretty far along, Yeah, right? they, um... From what I was told, they didn't know he was terminal until just a couple of days before what I'm talking to you about. Um, so which they was told only him, like a week ago. Well, but, maybe uh, they told him he had cancer. He was like, "I'm not gonna fucking deal with this." Shit. Yeah, you know, look, I didn't get to see him or talk to him. Um, from uh, I could only surmise that he made the decision to truly go out on top because yeah. they had just finished a European run that some of the biggest headline gigs they've played in the history of their band. Yeah. I, Lemmy certainly wasn't the kind of guy that wanted to waste away in a bed for right. two to six months. Yeah, yeah. That's not, that's yeah, not yeah. the way he would ever... He, I can't tell you how many times he would say to me over the years, I'm going to die on stage, Scott. And I'm like, I, I believe you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he, he almost did. Yeah, he almost did. A couple times from in this last tour. I mean, I know this sounds crazy and morbid and everything, but truly... If he would have dropped dead like playing Ace of Spades uh, at their last show in Germany, then w what could have been better than that? It would have been you great. Know? Yeah, it would have been, it, that truly would have been like, all right, end of story. So let's go back, uh, Scott. Let's go back to when you were just, uh, you know, a Jewish kid. <laughs> yeah, I kind of still am that. <laughs> we can't get rid of it. I still talk about, I'm still talking about Lemmy the same way I did when I was 15. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so funny man like well there's part of a, i don't know i guess that's just 
respect. You know, I feel the same way about people. Like when I interviewed Keith Richards, I almost shit myself. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. I was yeah. like fucking nuts. Yeah, but you've been able because like I never followed through the music dream. I, yeah, I mean, you've been able to play with almost all of your fucking heroes. Yeah, at al- some point almost, or another. Yeah. Yep. Who haven't you? ACDC. Oh, I was my biggest ones. I, I, it's like they're the they're. Tell me, he's not the best fucking guitar player in the world. Uh, for sure, both of them. Both of them. Yeah, yeah. They're my favorite band ever. Um, most influential on me as a guitar player. Really? Yeah, yeah. Malcolm's rhythm playing, just his his pocket. Yeah, his feel. Uh, somehow, I I I do my best to just transpose that into what I do in in anthrax i know we don't sound anything alike but it's it's the feeling it's where he's putting the chords and how he's his the way his right hand is moving and his his economical playing that's kind of how i always look at it it's very economical and i don't know how it is that they can be so fucking simple yet no one can fucking do what they do that's the thing it's It's a fucking magic trick yeah it is it's a magic trick because it's the most difficult thing to really get it right right it's easier to cover rush than it is to cover (laughs) acdc and we've done both and that's why i know (laughs) we've done both and acdc is much harder what is it just the groove or like well he's sort of a a trick he's a tricky guitar player because he's, he's all licks and they're you know they got nice space in them yeah it's you it can't is. cheat it's all of it it's i think it truly is how simple it truly is and you'll i'll be playing like covering their stuff and i'll be thinking no there's got to be more he's right. playing the chords more but then you re-listen and you're like no he's not he's literally just like hitting it one what, time what, or something which like, covers do you usually do well we've we've recorded uh we've recorded tnt we've recorded a whole lot of rosie um, I feel like I'm missing one. Um, but lie, I mean, I've done so many of them in, in Anthrax with friends. I mean, let there be rock. Yeah, a million times. Down payment blues. Oh, down payment blues yeah. is the best. Um, that's so I used, many. We used to use that as a theme song. That's my favorite ACDC song. So mine too. That's so <laughs> fucked up. That's so weird because that's like not you know that's not one that everybody has. Yeah, it's a deep track, but. It, I love the way it starts. One. Yeah, and the, just, cor- the opening chords, and his, then the second guitar comes in. It's yeah. crazy. His lyrics to that song too are just, you know, he's just telling the story, and it's, I don't know, it's just for me, it epitomizes that band for so, some reason. Where'd you grow up as a as a Jewish kid? Bayside, Queens. Wow, Bayside. Yeah, but like you were bar mitzvah and everything. Uh huh. <laughs> Only because my grandfather was Orthodox, and he, uh, it was really important to him. My parents. Uh, in the seventies, weren't really. We had a Christmas tree. They weren't. Yeah, we really had one or two anyway. Shape I went or form. To, you didn't go to Hebrew school. No, I, my. They asked my mom. Asked me. My parents divorced. So uh, uh, when was that? Seventy five. So I was eleven. Oh really? We were living. We lived in Queens. Moved out to my. You know, parents bought a house on Long Island for three years. That turned into a complete nightmare. And uh, uh, parents divorced. And then me and my brother moved back to Queens, a few blocks from where. I, we had lived before in Bayside, and then with I, your right, mother, yeah, with my mom, and right into seventh grade. So it was like prime time, perfect. Nineteen seventy-five. I was just gonna turn twelve. You know, were and you I was pissed back in the city? No, I wasn't pissed. I couldn't have been happier, actually. Why? Because they were miserable well, together. They were screaming each other. <laughs> oh, you know, no. screaming each other and throw mine and my brother's GI Joe toys at each other. Oh, so. really? Or my mom would throw the G.I. Joe toys at the wall. My dad wasn't a thrower. It's really. a, oh, your mom <laughs> no. was the uh, was the yeah. passionate one. Yes. Yeah. So it it was. I was actually couldn't have been happier. I was back in Queens where all my friends were, who I went to first, second, and third grade with. Now I'm back and I'm starting junior high and like, 
you know, first day to school, uh, some kid hands me a joint. I'm like, wow, things are different in the city than Long Island. <laughs> what town in Long Island were you? We were like in Seaford. I don't even know where the yeah, fuck it's that like is. It's like by Wantaw, same uh-huh. area. So you're out there. Just, it was the, yeah. It's, it's so funny suburbs. that the picture that you, of you and your dad when you were born, I have the same fucking picture <laughs> with my dad, the same Jewish profile, right. the same confused look, holding <laughs> the kid the same fucking way. Like, yeah. what am I going to do with this thing? What'd your dad do? Uh, jewelry business. Really? Yeah, in the jewelry business. In the city or out there? In the city. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, in the city. So you're you're 12 years old. You're smoking weed. <laughs> Before your bar mitzvah. Did you see a Serious Man? Did you see that movie, the Coen Brothers movie? No, uh, you know it? I haven't seen that. You gotta watch I, it. Yeah, dude. I have to see that. Kid gets yeah. high in the bathroom before he gets his bar mitzvah. Well, I I didn't do that. It's hilarious. I got pretty drunk that night though. At the, at the we had a party in our apartment, my mom's apartment after. Oh yeah, um, the bar mitzvah party. All yeah. the kids come. Yeah, all the kids came. I I I never went to Hebrew school. My parents gave me the choice. Yeah. Do you want to go to Hebrew school? I was like, hell no. <laughs> like all my friends who went to Hebrew school were miserable in Hebrew school, <laughs> and I'd go to these bar mitzvahs and they'd be singing for three hours. Yeah. Like, this is insane. And my mother, do you want to go? I was like, nope. I'm gonna stay home and play guitar and ride my skateboard. Like that's what I'm gonna do. So when I did it, it was transliterated for me. It took about four minutes. It yeah. was literally. <laughs> Baruch you know, just oh, right, in like, English, right, yeah, right? Couldn't have been easier. But my grandfather was happy. That's all that mattered. And he was up there with you for a minute. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I they... remember it was some weird place in Forest Hills. They had a hard time finding a place that would bar mitzvah me because, uh, well, because I really didn't know it. But also, yeah. like, I don't know, it had something to do with Orthodox or not. And all the ladies had to sit like. In the back. Oh, really? Like, That's yeah, it was one like of those in, places? It was like an intense room. So, you, Oh, yeah, tough room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the ladies are in back. Yeah. And the, the, a lot of judgment on the faces of the bearded men. Exactly. Oh, re- so your grandfather set it up somewhere. Yes. They, he probably slipped him a few bucks. Yeah, Kid doesn't know what he's doing, yeah, but exactly. help me. We got to get him in. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, I passed. And, oh, uh, good, good. So but, when, when did you first start playing, though? Um, Before that, when we were in Long Island... Like I was probably, it was probably like 73, so I was nine years old. Um, I saw I saw The Who on TV on something. I saw Pete Townsend do Breaking the guitars? As he was doing his windmill. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And um, I said to my dad, I want to play guitar. I would love to play guitar. And there was an acoustic guitar in the house. Not quite sure why, because... Like, my dad knew, like, two chords, but he never played guitar. Well, that's the way he probably did what my dad did. They bought it once. They got, you know, they learned three folk songs. Yeah. And then it sat there. There was a harmony guitar in my house. Yeah, there was some acoustic guitar always sitting around the house. Steel, nylon? Nylon strings. And uh, so I remember picking it up and trying to do a windmill and, and all that. And then I started guitar lessons, and I loved it. Yeah. Until my teacher was like... It became homework, like writing out charts and theory, and uh, I was like, "Fuck this!" Yeah, I couldn't do this it. This sucks. You know, I, I don't do want to. I would say I want to learn. You know, teach me communication breakdown. Yeah, give me the chords. Yeah, man. I just want to learn how to play songs. He's like, <laughs> yeah. "Oh, you have to learn this," and he was like a cool dude. Like he was, yeah. he was like seventeen or eighteen with long hair, and he had a strat, and he played in a band. Was and he all a wizard? Could he really play? Did he, he could show play. off to yeah, you all yeah. the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, he could totally yeah. play. I remember his name, Russell Alexander. Oh and, yeah. Uh, and uh, I thought he was the coolest guy in the world. They until, always are. Until he wanted me to like do homework. I was like, I'm not doing homework. I just want to learn how to play songs by yeah. you know, bands. And 
Oh, everyone had to. I, I was like, I don't believe that. I don't think yeah. Jimmy Page ever sat around. He probably he probably did. did. Yeah, <laughs> but, out of all of them, yeah, he probably did. But so then I got sick of it, and after six months, I, I said to my parents, basically, I don't want to take lessons anymore. Yeah. I just want to do it on my own, and I'm sure they probably thought, "Oh, that's it. The guitar's going to go yeah, in the corner yeah, yeah, and collect yeah. dust." But no, I, I worked twice as hard because I would just sit with records and learn songs. And then, would you have chord books? No, I just ear my ear. I I was able to just listen and you know and yeah. figure out what they were doing. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, you're at that point when you're just a total beginner and like. Going from a G to a C chord seems like I, I'll never be able to oh, do yeah. this. Right, like, exactly. I can remember that. Like, where how do you actually go from chord to chord without stopping? And, you know, I can remember feeling that. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden, one day, you're going from chord to chord. You're like, oh, my God, it's the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, what was the first song you learned all the way through? Wipeout. Oh, really? Yeah, like oh, the yeah. Safaris. Well, that was, you know, because you could do that by ear, right? Yeah. I had to learn, I learned that. I learned Bad Bad Leroy Brown, and I learned Blown in the Wind. Oh, wait, I used to play Bad Bad Leroy Brown, too. I played those at a talent show, at, like, in the fourth grade. So when did you start uh, playing with people? I mean, what was uh, what was it that compelled you to start playing with people? Because, to me, sitting in the house just playing guitar was literally jerking off. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's... I still do it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? That's all I do. It's, <laughs> like, for me, as a kid, even, uh, I, I, it was the same... They were both parallel for me. I wanted to play guitar with other people, or, like, I wanted to have sex with girls. Like, yeah. I didn't want to just stay at home and go like this, so... <laughs> As so, I was always looking for other kids to play with, and it, when we moved back to Queens, there was no other kids playing guitar on Long Island. I was, I was totally come on, no, like where I was, nobody cared. Uh, all, the, all these kids, uh, all they cared about was street hockey. That's all anyone did in my neighborhood was like play street hockey. Really? Yeah. And then at at night they would go to the overpass and drink Tango, which was like some crappy vodka orange juice mix pre mix yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. And these are like twelve year olds, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, and I, I wasn't ready for that. So I would sit in the basement and play with my Hot Wheels and play guitar, like, and Through listen the to the records. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. And uh, I had a, a my my cousin, Eddie, who's more my dad's cousin, I guess my second cousin, he was like a biker dude, and uh, they lived not far from us. And once in a while, we'd go over there, and down in their basement, they had all amps and these all, and get drums. And, oh, those places, they, the first time you walk into that kind yeah. of place, you're like, what the fuck? Black light posters and all yeah. these biker dudes in vests, long hair, smoking weed, and they'd all be down there just jamming. I'd be like, this is the coolest thing, you know? And, <laughs> yeah. But they wouldn't. I couldn't jam with them like that. I Why? Because I was a kid, you know? I'd <laughs> yeah. just sit on the side with my jaw on the floor, but... Um, what were they playing like old hippie rock? Who even knows? Yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> I just remember like wah wah pedals and oh man. But uh, once I got back to Queens, I immediately started meeting kids in seventh grade, like in the neighborhood, who played guitar, played drums. Oh, and, so out on the island, they didn't do nothing. That's no. where you, the hockey was out on the yeah, island. Yeah, yeah. But once, once I was got, back in Queens, that's yeah. where they all were, right? Yes, everybody was playing. Yeah. And did, who would you meet? Who was that? Did any of them make it into Anthrax? Uh, not the initial, initial kid. What's your, what's your no. real last name? Rosenfeld. Scott oh. Ian Rosenfeld. Well, I got Rosenfeld. Are we fucking related? I got Rosenfeld. Maybe. My, it's got to be. <laughs> I, do, I do. So no, no one made it into Anthrax from the original crew? No, because that didn't, Anthrax really didn't start to like take shape until probably, it was probably in like 1980 when... Uh, Danny Lilker, who was the original bass player in Anthrax, um, we became friends in school probably around, I don't know, 79 or something yeah, like yeah. that. And uh, 
And then we would walk to school together every day and talk about metal and music and blah, blah, blah. And, and uh, he was in a band called White Heat at the time. Yeah, which yeah, yeah. were actually already playing gigs in the city. And they were, they were like, we were all the same age, you know, 15, 16. What were they playing? What kind of music? Like, they had their own songs. They had originals. And it was like metal, hard yeah. rock slash yeah, yeah, heavy yeah. metal. And, yeah. uh, and they would play gigs in Manhattan, which was like the coolest thing in the world yeah. to me. Like, wow, you, you guys actually play in the city. And their, sid- their singer... At the time, this guy Marco, he I think lived in Manhattan, which was like unfathomable to me. Like, <laughs> but he but he didn't grow up there; he just lived there. I'm not sure; I don't remember. But, um, uh, and I would always say to Danny because he learned about anthrax in in high school. Yeah, he learned about it in I think it was biology class or something one yeah. day, and he yeah. said, "I learned about this thing called anthrax today." And I was yeah. like, that sounds really cool. Like that sounds like a metal band name. One of these days, so I would say it all the time. When White Heat breaks up, you and I are going to start a band called Anthrax because we would jam all the time. Every day we were at one of the other's house jamming. You know, what would you play? What was the Sabbath? Band that, yeah, tons of Sabbath. What was Priest, the first band Maiden. that blew your mind though? Outside of the Who, where you were like, "Fuck, this." is Oh it. well, it was. I mean, it was a nonstop, just nonstop. Like, yeah. Um, from early on, Elton John was probably the first thing I really, really, really fell in love with. I like my dad took me to see Elton John in like '74 at Nassau Coliseum. And, oh yeah, um, yeah. What I, album I, was he touring? Like, was that Goodbye Yellowbrick Road or something? Like, yeah, or Don't Shoot Me on the Piano oh, Player. Oh yeah, or so like right early around. shit. Yeah, Elton John for me kind of really kind of opened the door. Yeah. I think for me, and then after that, it just not long after that. Uh, was Kiss like that and that for me was because my parents liked Elton John too sure. my parents listened to pretty cool music like I remember the Woodstock album being on all the time and and uh, um, they loved the band you know yeah um, there was a lot of good music in the house um, but Kiss was my thing they uh, they didn't want anything to do with that well it was that was special for just you in the you know kids of that decade and that age the Kiss Army that was yeah they were designed for fucking you know, kids who didn't know what to do with their dicks yet, but were sort of exactly they <laughs> they mainline like that was heroin for 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 <laughs> my, me and my friends for real. Yeah, like uh, I was in the three things when I was twelve years old. Yeah. I was in the comic books, I was in the horror, and I was in the rock music. Yeah, and they put it all in one fiery bloody package. <laughs> and uh, when I heard rock and roll, I heard rock and roll all night on the radio. Yeah. In my, the car with my mom, our yeah. like '72 yellow Ford Torino station wagon. Yeah, and uh, I heard that on the radio, and I was like, "That all right? That's the best song I've ever heard." <laughs> but the DJ never back announced it, oh, so no. I didn't know who it was. And then, like a week later, yeah, I- I'm watching something in the afternoon on TV. It's just on, yeah, and I see these four dudes in makeup, and I'm kind of like, "Who the hell are those guys?" Yeah. And my, you know, my initial instinct was. That they look really. This looks yeah. stupid. Yeah. I don't right. like this. Like yeah. I don't like it. And then they're like, here they are, kissed with their new hit, rock and roll all night. I was like, whoa, that's them. And then instantly, just <laughs> fucking needle into the vein. Like you got yeah, that was it. Your full on kiss. That was it. Done. <laughs> like from seventy five, uh, from seventy five through seventy eight. Because yeah. uh, uh, Kiss Alive, I bought Kiss Alive that year. Yeah. For my dad yeah. for his birthday because I had like six dollars to buy my dad a birthday present, so I bought Kiss Alive, knowing he was just gonna say thank you and hand it back to me. <laughs> and uh, that was it from Kiss from basically so from and I went out and bought the first three records, 
Um, and then, of course, every six months they were releasing, as, as bands did in the 70s, every six months there was a new album. Yeah. And But I only lasted till 78, till like uh, Love Gun, Alive 2, and then they put out the four solo records, yeah, of which I it? only really liked Aces. And then that was it. As, yeah. as hard as I was into them, by like 79, I went to Nassau Coliseum to see Kiss, Judas Priest, and left after Judas Priest. Like, I didn't even care about Kiss anymore. Would they open for him? Judas Priest opened. And you're yeah. like, that's yeah. the new me thing. Me and my friends, we went to see, we were only going to see Priest. Oh, really? Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Those three years of Kiss and the, all those old records, I still love them now like yeah. I did in 1977. Right, right, right. But, uh, but by 79, just musically, I had moved. Sure. Like, musically that. and emotionally. Yeah. You know, like, it, it's it's sort of funny. So, uh, you know, like, the, the anger or whatever was in you that compelled you towards metal was sort of like. Yeah. I needed it, heavier, harder, go, faster. Yeah. <laughs> Like just everything, yeah. you know. And Judas Priest was like, "Oh my God!" Like no one, had, they were like, "Like we're like, how could anything be heavier than Sabbath?" You know, and right, right. Like you know, well, because there's two guitars, yeah. yeah like, <laughs> and they brought speed to it too, yeah, right? yeah. They and there was like double bass drumming in it, and like just like you'd never heard it, and it was creepy, and like even darker and doomier and rob halford singing those high notes just like holy shit you know and yeah of course i was into tons of shit and i mean everything great in the 70s from every rock band hard rock and even disco i love disco i never told anybody i love disco because yeah, yeah i had my disco sucks t-shirt for sure but i fucking loved it yeah. great players great grooves great you gotta keep great, up appearances yeah, great Scott. pop great pop songs no doubt and if you put on you know you could Put on a, a chic record at a party, and maybe a girl will dance with you, sure. and then possibly kiss you. <laughs> they're not doing that to fucking Judas Priest. <laughs> no, no girls in the room. <laughs> yeah, and if they are, they're drunk. Yeah, <laughs> and they're throwing like, up on themselves. Like when you when you're sitting in a room arguing over, well, who's a better lead guitar player, Richie Blackmore or Joe Perry? That's it. <laughs> fucking, that's a pussy there, dryer. There might be one sweeping girl with a feathered haircut who might burn herself with her cigarettes on the couch. Right. So, you know, disco had it. It definitely had its purpose, too. Oh, that discussion. Richie Blackmore, Joe Perry. But, yeah, I I was into everything. I mean, I couldn't get Punk rock music. yet? But um, oh, yeah, yeah. For but sure, that... the Ramones. I You know, the Ramones lived in Forest Hills. So I remember seeing them on the Sha Na Na TV show. Oh, my God. Because we used to watch that right, with right. my parents. They loved that show. So I used to watch Sha Na Na every week. That weird variety yeah, show yeah, they had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With and Bowser. The, yeah, and the Ramones were on one time. And I was like, whoa, who are these dudes? Yeah. Like, playing super fast. And they looked like me. They were wearing Levi's in a leather jacket. And they had long hair. Yeah. And uh, and then I remember, like, picking up a copy of Cream or Rock Scene magazine or something and finding out that the Ramones were from Queens, like, from Forest Hills specifically. And like Circus like, or Crawdaddy? Or yeah. Rock, yeah, like, all those magazines that aren't around anymore. So I'm like, that's just a few miles from here. And look, those guys are on TV. If, if they can do it, I can do it. Like, I never said that about Kiss. That was unreachable. But the Ramones, I was like... Yeah, I, I can do that. Yeah, I can play guitar just like Johnny Ramone. Like, <laughs> so they, I, I was way. I saw him at Queens College in '79. Like, I was way in the. Well, it's funny it. if you really think about it, and I'm sure you have. I mean, it's it's just funny graduating from you know Kiss, which you know after a certain age they are sort of clowns, right? And then to to uh, to Judas Priest, which they're they're they were more menacing in their stage. You oh, know, yeah. even there was a lot of stage. Uh, um, you know, show. Yeah, theatrics, everything. Theatrics, yes. but but they were, it was different. Right. It was, and now we know it was like, you know, well, gay. 
yeah, <laughs> a little bit. And uh, but then like um, the Ramones, because I think that if I listen to Anthrax correctly, I mean, it seems like he probably influenced you more than most people. Johnny, Johnny Ramone, yes. yeah, yeah, oh yeah, his downpicking style, you know, just that, yeah, 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 just constantly. Of course, in the type of music we play, we added in the palm mute when we're downpicking. Sure, it. So right, it right, gives right. It that chunking edge, instead yeah, yeah, of just yeah. Open strings, but um, a little more distortion too, right? Oh yeah, yeah much yeah. much more distorted tone than than Ramones. But yeah, his his aggressive right hand was was a big influence on me. Yeah, yeah. So when when did you put the first, the original lineup together? It was in 81. Um I had a band We called, graduated college in 81, didn't we? Or high school Graduated in high school in 81. Yeah. And uh I had a band called 4X named after the condom. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea why. <laughs> but uh um yeah. And uh and uh, so we, not that we didn't do anything, we would rehearse and we'd play like at the high school battle of the bands and things like that. Yeah. But uh, um, we put together, one night we had a jam session at some rehearsal studio not far from where we lived in Bayside. And uh, it went, it was me and Danny Loker and some of the guys from 4X and and uh, this kid, John Connolly, who we knew from high school, he was singing and just, you know, jamming on cover songs. Yeah. But uh, it just went so well. Something sparked in the room. Like it really... Like, we played Maiden covers better than we had ever played Maiden covers with anyone else before. Yeah. And uh, and Danny Looker's band had broken up, White Heat. And and we looked at each other, and I said, this is it, man. This is Anthrax. This is the band. He's like, yeah. okay, yeah. And like, <laughs> yeah. you guys want to be in a band? Yeah, let's be in a band. <laughs> and that was the official start, July 18th, 1981, because I put it on a calendar. And, the and summer said, after like, high school graduation. Yeah, we, the night Anthrax was formed. And- we just started rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. Danny already had some songs and some riffs that we kind of hijacked from his old band, White Heat. Yeah. And then we just kind of rewrote stuff. So we just dove in and just did our best to write our own material right from the start. And and how long did it take to put together the first record? When did that happen? Uh, started in 81. You know, numerous lineup changes going through singers. Get to, well, I know. No, I look at like not not being a, a full Anthrax nerd. The lineup changes are ridiculous, dude. But especially, <laughs> dude. I mean, no one even knows the lineup changes from '81 till <laughs> till end of '82 or early '83. Those two years trying to put the lineup together yeah. that was actually going to record our first album, right? Because you know, you'd you'd get a dude in the band who's like a great guitar player or something, but wouldn't chip in for the rehearsal spot. So like, all right, you're out. You know, fuck you. <laughs> Like yeah. everyone's got to chip in ten bucks. You're yeah. in the band. Chip in. No, right. I, I'm paying my money. Money. Like, all right, you're fired. So <laughs> there was a lot of that going on. Um, you know, dudes would be in the band for a week. Right. Um, but who were the like the the core was was you and Danny, right? It was me and Danny Looker, and then uh, and then Neil Turbin, who sings on the first album. Right. He went to high school with us, so we we got him. And then and then the the key, the real key, was when. We had this drummer, Greg D'Angelo, who uh, was a great drummer, but really couldn't play the double kick. Right. Couldn't play that fast double bass drumming that we wanted in our sound. And he ended up quitting the band after Anthrax and Metallica played this you know, shithole of a club in, in Jersey. And after the show, he tells us, I'm leaving. I'm leaving the band. I'm joining this band, Cities, which at the time, they were kind of this hot band. They could like pack Lemores in Brooklyn and... and uh, it was like really, and I got all. I'm like really, like those guys. That that shit ain't gonna last, you know. That's like there already is a Van Halen, you know. That that shit ain't gonna last, because it's kind of what it sounded like, <laughs> right, and, right. And uh, 
And he's like, well, whatever. Anyway, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm joining the cities. I'm like, all right, you know. And I, I was kind of a dick and, and yeah. uh, about it. And, and we weren't friends for a long time after that. But it was the best thing that ever happened because through a mutual friend, this guy Tom Brown, he said, you guys need a drummer. My friend Charlie, you know, he's like the best drummer in the world. And that was Charlie Benante, who then Danny Looker and I soon after that went to his little uh, his house, his mom's house, and he had a drum set upstairs. This is in Throg's Neck in the Bronx. Throg's Neck. Yeah, and uh, he had a drum set up in a small, half the size of this room. Yeah. He had like this 12-piece giant <laughs> drum kit with toms and cymbals everywhere. And yeah. We're like squeezed in there with two little <laughs> amps, and we just start jamming on Maiden and Motorhead. And, and there was a song by a band called Accept at the time called Fast as a Shark, which yeah. was the standard of, like, they had set the bar for double kick. Like, tick -tick 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 -tick. it was like the fastest double kick anyone right, had right. ever heard. And and uh, he's like, please don't ask me to play Fast as a Shark. And I'm like, you you can play Fast as a Shark? Yeah. And uh, he's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and we're like, all right, we don't know the whole song, but we know how to get into it. And, yeah. and we start jamming it, and he plays, tick -tick -tick -tick. he's playing it faster then accept and me and Danny are just like you know just boner you know yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you want to be in the band you want to be in the band and it took a few months of like convincing and this and that and but Charlie joined the band and then that was it like then we you know we basically that yeah, was the, the whole core. sound yeah that was it like he 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 completed us <laughs> wow so but he stayed with you for like uh, Danny didn't stay no Danny got fired by our then singer Neil because. Neil didn't like the fact that there was somebody taller than him. Get the fuck out of here. Neil Why'd a, you let that happen? You had to respect the singer. Singers was, are crazy, right? It was ter it, It's the worst still to this day. The you know, the one decision that was made that I, I wish I, I, I would have just... But at the time, we had finished a record. We had a record literally done. It's going to come out. And he gave us the ultimatum. It's either him or me. And we, how could we have lost our singer with a record about to come out? Like, you know, Ugh. everyone was like, we can't. We can't lose our singer. What are we going to do? And, and uh, yeah, I was sick to my stomach because Danny was my best friend. So that was, that was the worst thing that I ever had to deal with in the context of being in a band was, like, literally that making that call to Danny. Because he called me up and said, dude, what's going on? Neil just called me and said, I'm out of the band. And I was like, what? And, you know, I'll call you back. And then... We're all on the phone and we're talking to our manager, Johnny Z, and everyone, blah, blah, blah. And it, what are we going to do? You know, we can't lose our singer. And it sucked. And Johnny sucked. Z said, you got to. Yeah, he didn't tell us you have to. We, you know, yeah. it was our decision. Did you and Danny become friends again? Or Yeah, we did. We, we obviously, we kind of lost touch. He started his band called Nuclear Assault. And, and, uh, but then a couple they, of years later, I did this side thing called SOD, the Stormtroopers of Death. And it, it's just this ridiculous inside joke of a record of kind of hardcore metal crossover sound oh, which which one that, that speak, speak english, english yeah, 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 yeah 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 and uh i had written like 10 of these songs already and then i called danny i said hey i, I i'm writing these crazy like 30 second songs and 60 second songs and um you want to come up to ithaca that's where we were, anthrax was recording our second album and uh, you want to come up and just fuck around with this and he did and you know we finished that record and that's you know that's a different thing but yeah we reconnected on that and and uh, you know um, you're okay now. Yeah, totally okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like you, you got over the 18 year old yes. horrible moment. Yes, horrible. I was able to get over that. So, but uh, that that band that that record sold good, right? Yeah, yeah. That was which, like I said, it's just a thing that made us laugh, and yeah, but it was brutally heavy at the same time, and 
And uh, uh, yeah, it did really well. After Anthrax blew up, when Anthrax started to blow up in 87, because SOD came out in 85 and no one was paying that much attention to it. it, it we had like a core group of kids in New York, and um, but nobody really knew about it. But then when Anthrax started to blow up, people found out about SOD and then that blew up as well. How'd the first record do? Fistful did okay. Like, you know, whatever that was back then, it had sold, you know, in the tens of thousands. And it got you, like, on the road opening for big acts? Um, no, we went out with a band called Raven, who were also just, they were from Newcastle, England. And yeah. they were from that kind of scene. If you've seen the Anvil movie, yeah. Raven, same exact story. But from British. like New Yeah, but from Newcastle <laughs> and but same exact story on the cusp of making it no. massive. Yeah. And then uh -huh. but uh um but at the time were bigger than us. Metallica's first tour of the US in eighty three. They they supported Raven and then in eighty four we supported Raven summer of eighty four. But the last show of that tour was at the Roseland Ballroom in New York. Sold out thirty five hundred tickets instantly. Raven, Metallica, Anthrax. And of course that's when record labels were like, huh? You know, who are these bands selling 3,500 tickets without, you know, with just an indie record deal? We were all on this, you know, Megaforce Records, Johnny Z's label. and You and, and Metallica? Uh, yeah. So you know, you've had a relationship with Metallica for like 30, 40 years. Since they showed yeah. up in New York in a U-Haul. Yeah, 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 yeah. Since literally the day they pulled in from San Francisco. So that's almost 40 years, dude. Yeah, yeah, 82. It's crazy, yeah, so, right? Yeah. Wow, 30, woo, yeah. Um, so at that night at, at Roseland, all the labels were there scouting and... Right after that, basically, Metallica signed to Electra. We signed to Island, and Raven signed to Atlantic. Yeah, and then the story goes. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> right, know, we were, right. We were but Raven was gone. Raven made it like one or two records on Atlantic, and then that was it, done. So how did you guys... Well, now, you you guys just got offered. Did did uh, did um, Electra offer you a deal as well, or was there a bidding war? Or did you, what was no, it? No, like? at, at the time... Um, I think it was kind of cut and dry. They were all under the same Time Warner. Oh, okay. Atlantic, Electra, and Island. And, right. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't behind the scenes with Johnny, obviously, in on any of those yeah. dealings, but that's how it all played out. And Johnny Z? Yeah, and Island was very, very excited for us. And we liked the fact that we were going to a label that had no other hard rock or metal bands. Electra and Atlantic had tons of Well, hard this rock is sort of the birth of the new generation of metal, right? Yeah. Exactly. And, and Mustaine was in Metallica at the time? He was already out of Metallica. Already gone? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, he was out of Metallica. He had Megadeth already. Yeah. Um, who also had their first record out at the time. So all you guys yeah, were yeah. getting the deals. And then you did your second album, you stayed with Johnny Z? Yeah. Yeah, Johnny was with us all the way through to 1993 or 94 or something But you like went that. through a few labels? No, we were on Island that whole time. Yeah. Um, when did you hook up with uh, the sing with Joey? Uh, Joey, that, that happened... We fired that for, that guy Neil right after that tour, right after that Roseland show. Did he become a bigger dick? Or well, yeah, we, it was. <laughs> it, he became impossible. Like uh -huh. it literally became. We never could have moved forward as a band. Yeah, if, yeah, yeah. If he was going to stay in the band, and we made the decision to make a change, and and so he was gone. We had already written most of Spreading the Disease. We went in the studio. That album was like basically done, recorded, and we didn't have a singer. And then, right. Uh, the guy who was producing that record, Carl Kennedy, he had seen Joey playing in this band called Bible Black and somehow got his phone number and asked if he wanted to come down and, and just check out what was going on with this band, Anthrax. Nobody nobody knew who the fuck we were. We weren't anything yet. And and this is before the second album. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and uh, he came down to Ithaca and 
walked in and he went out on the mic and we're all in the control room and he's like, what do you want me to do? He didn't know our songs. And yeah. Like, I don't know, sing whatever. And he like started like just singing like, like O Sherry from Steve Perry and yeah, Foreigner yeah. and like whatever and oh that shit yeah and his voice was incredible like we were like holy crap this what a voice on this guy real like, singer everyone was like looking at each other like because all the other bands of our ilk just had guys who yeah. they just oh you have the least offensive bark you <laughs> you could at least bark all night <laughs> yeah yeah you know yeah so. And now we had a singer, singer, like, and, like, I remember, like, Johnny Z, and, like, everyone was like, this is the guy that's going to set you apart. And it was true, you know, because we had, like, we always looked at Anthrax, even though we loved Motorhead. Yeah. We always looked at it as an- Anthrax as more of uh, Judas Priest or Iron Maiden, who right. had, like, real singers. Um, as much as we love Motorhead, we wanted a, a guy like that. We wanted, like, a Bruce Dickinson or, yeah, or, Rob, yeah, yeah. or Rob Halford. And we, we found it with Joey. And and he uh, he did the second record and the third. How many he did? How many records total? Yeah, he did. He did spreading and among and state of euphoria persists the time attack of the killer bees, and then that got us into like ninety two, and then that's when we made the the change and Joey was out and John Bush was in. So those records among the living was the big one, right? That's the one that broke us. Yeah. And when when like what was the when you say what was the build like? So among the living when you're touring among the living. Who are you touring with? We st- no one. We were headlining. Oh, okay. That that tour started at like the Penny Arcade in Rochester, New York, I think in like May of 87. We sold out, but whatever, it held 500 people or something. Yeah. But by December of 87, we were playing to five, six, seven, eight thousand 8,000 people a night. Holy shit. It happened. It was like that fast. And what, do, what, in, in that, but that was among the living then? Yeah. And then that it just spread? Because things just spread then with to metalheads. They the were wave, like, these are the ones. The wave we were a part of, like, literally broke with us and Metallica and Slayer and Megadeth. Um, you know, Metallica definitely opened the door um, for because they they were, like, six months ahead of everybody else or a year ahead because their first album came out, like, that about that long before the yeah. rest of our debut records. Right. So Metallica had already, like, went out and opened for Ozzy. Yeah, and had spread this new sound around the country in a very big mainstream way, and right people. So people were looking for more of it, and you know, so for us, right album, right place, right time. But the entire culture of metal changed, and you were part of the shift. Yeah, and and then there's all these new fucking fifteen year old guys who are like, holy shit! Yeah, exactly. like you were when you were with Kiss. Yeah, for sure, that and was it. Through the '90s, you were playing arenas. Or through the late eighties. No, the eighties. Yeah. yeah, pretty much through the late eighties into into the early nineties, we'd become like yeah that type of band anywhere from, you know, five thousand to fifteen thousand depending on the on the market and you know started playing festivals in eighty seven we played the Castle Donington Monsters of Rock thing in England to eighty thousand people not headlining yeah. Bon Jovi headlined but. But that day when Cinderella Isn't that Wasp- weird, though, that Bon Jovi headlined, and even with the prominence of the music you were playing, those hard rock guys, they still fucking held on. Oh, well, and this they- is also Europe where you'd have bills, more right, eclectic right. bills right, like right, that. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you could have Anthrax and Metallica on that same bill that day with Bon Jovi, and everybody was kind of there to see everybody. Right. You know, even though- I guess that's the way a big festival yeah, works, generally. 40, 50,000 people were losing their shit for Anthrax and Metallica. Like, right crazier that even though bon jovi went over just fine 
there was a certain intensity level, and of course, then that opened the door, floodgates for us in the UK like, and Europe, right? But here, like that's like different armies. Yeah, you know? of course. <laughs> you yeah, know, like you could never. I mean, if Bon Jovi showed up on a bill with Megadeth or or Metallica right. or you, it'd be like, what? Yeah, no, it wouldn't have worked. No, no. Way. Case in point, we're out with Ozzy. We're opening for Ozzy in '88 uh, for like two months uh, at the end of '88, and. Our last show on the tour was New Year's Eve at Long Beach Arena. Right. And, um, and then he was going on in January, but we were done. And apparently what happened was there was never an announcement that Anthrax wasn't still going to be out with Ozzy. And he shows up the next show, I think it was Reno after L.A., a couple of days later. And I, you have an arena full of kids expecting Anthrax, and he had Winger. If you remember them, <laughs> yeah. the, the band that the kid sure. from Beavis and Butthead, you yeah, know, yeah, the W, yeah, yeah, and uh, Winger comes out on stage and did not go over well. <laughs> <laughs> so that's you know basically yeah what you were saying. Did you but, get to know Ozzy? Yeah, yeah, for sure. He was a sweetheart, man. The guy would come in our dressing room all the time and hang just out. Couldn't have been nicer. Like, yeah, nicest guy ever. Now you guys, you got pretty. Uh, the the sort of crossover with Public Enemy was sort of a big deal, right? Like it was like uh, it was like because people were like, "What?" Like it was. Uh, how did how did that all transpire? That you guys uh, you covered a Public Enemy. Yeah, this, the short story is three of us, Charlie, Frankie, and I, being from Queens and the Bronx, were we were kind of in the epicenter of of rap music in the early '80s, and as many of my friends who hated it, well, I loved it. I loved rap, and Run DMC moved me the same way Maiden did. Yeah, and uh, so when Public Enemy, we had already did this song "I'm the Man." It, it, Anthrax did this yeah. thing called "I'm the Man," which was our first platinum record, and which was literally a joke. I, I played the riff to Havana Gia, and we wrote stupid lyrics making fun of ourselves yeah. over it. It was like, you know, it was like the rap we were listening to at the time. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and it blew up. It yeah. became this massive thing. And um, But we opened the door for ourselves to do something better yeah. and more serious. And as soon as I heard Public Enemy, um, I just knew I had to work with Chuck D at some point. To me, his voice was like the heaviest thing I had ever heard. And his voice and my guitar together would just be the ultimate thing. And uh, um, so we just made that happen. We became friends, and then at some point, it, we were just able to make that happen by force of will. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we we recorded a track, and we sent it to him, and we said, we want to do Bring the Noise. And the whole world was against us. Chuck was like, that's kind of redundant. Why don't we write something new? And Rick Rubin was like, it's kind of redundant. Why don't you do something new? And our label's like, we don't want to work with Def Jam and Def Jam's, we don't want to work with them and blah, 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 blah. And then Chuck, we had a, we mailed the tape from LA where we were in the studio. It takes a week to get there. To yeah. I'm in Long Island. He finally hears it. He calls me up. He says, Scotty, this is slamming. It's on. Yeah. Like, let's do it. <laughs> oh, and that's good. all it took was you know, <laughs> yeah. him to finally hear it and then say, yes, I understand now. Let's go do it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, do you are you guys still friends? Yeah. Yeah. We just, they were on tour. Uh, Public Enemy and The Prodigy were just on tour while we were on tour in Europe just uh, uh, October, November, December. We had a night off in Munich, so Frankie, our bass player, and I went. We did bring the noise with PE at their show. And then I just saw Chuck because we did some interview together for Metal Hammer Magazine in the UK. So we did a photo session together uh, in Sheffield, of all places, <laughs> uh, in December. Like, So, yeah, I, I, still, I was still in touch with Chuck, still talk and hang I love out. to hear that. I, I love because, like, I. I'm naive when I have actors or musicians or anybody. I just assume everybody's buddies. So I like when people still have relationships yeah. with people. It's 
most of the time it's it's the other way. Most yeah, exactly. Of the time it's not, and but. a lot a lot of times just sort of like I never see that guy. Right, but like you know what I mean. It seems like you, you you've you've kept some relationships throughout the years. I have, yeah, and especially with Chuck. He's he's like yeah. he's he's the. I got to get him in here. He's the man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He changed, uh, he changed the world. Yeah, right. He did, <laughs> and you seem like a pretty pleasant guy. You don't seem like an asshole. Who him or you, Chuck? You. <laughs> I mean, I think that determines. I am. I think. Uh, I think I, I could be pretty antisocial. My wife sometimes has to give me the, you know, like uh, be nicer or like talk or you know, but uh, that's because sometimes I just I get bored when I'm somewhere and I'm just kind of in my head like yeah. listening to Iron Maiden in my yeah. brain or something while yeah. everyone else is doing whatever they're doing. Now you've been married twice? Three times. Three times? Yes. When did you get married the first time? 87. Oh yeah? That lasted two years almost to the day. Yeah? Was yeah. Nightmare? I just should have never been married. I was 22 years old and and uh, just like the band was just starting to happen. So uh-huh. it was like bad decision i was basically too much of a pussy i I would have to say at the time to break up to break up yeah i was just being a nice jewish boy and doing what i was supposed to do i did that man yeah i did it lasted longer than two years went on for a while yeah two years and isn't that weird where you have that decision where it's sort of like i know i need to get out but you want to get married yeah it was it was terrible i I was you know i was cheating on her you know where i was on tour i wasn't being faithful it was and she was from was the neighborhood terrible. or what? Yeah, she, well, not same neighborhood, but yeah, Queens. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was the, everyone had the plan for us. When we married, you can have kids, you can buy a house in Forest Hills, blah, blah, blah. You know, she had a great, really good job. And, um, yeah, but I was like, no way. There's no way. <laughs> so like, it ended badly? Yeah. No money, though. Oh, I had money. You yeah, did for at the, the pl- time. from the first record? Well, no, this is. 89 is when oh, so you, the, okay. like and then into 90 and so yeah i was already making money and yeah and so i, I literally that i was tapped after that every i had bought an apartment in in queens and yeah. i had a car and had money some money in the bank and yeah and i had nothing i literally like moved to california at the end of 89 after the divorce you had nothing yeah nothing yeah. i whatever yeah. like whatever i had i put in the truck that was driving anthrax's gear to la to record an album and i was like oh free move i'm getting out of new york <laughs> yeah, yeah and uh i put whatever i had on a truck and and came to los angeles to and, record which persistence of time the time yeah wow and how did, did that woman turn out all right yeah she's I'm all right sure she's fine yeah, oh, yeah. I, I mean I haven't, i'm not in touch with her no but, of course <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah you heard things though you didn't hear things yeah. I, no i i do hear things yeah but uh yeah she's fine she's got kids and oh yeah it's, it's, it's better it's nicer when it works out yeah when you're the asshole it's better what you know it's nice to hear like oh she's better off way better off trust but, me i didn't uh, in, look until i met pearl anything i did previous to that was uh, you know, I apologize, <laughs> like to everyone and anything. <laughs> well, who's the second one? Uh, second one was uh, I moved. That's one of the main reasons I came out to California. She's one of the women I was cheating on my first right. wife with. Uh, but that was I put that more on her than on me. I I was I was in I was in for the long haul on that one. And, yeah, and I'd have to say she definitely wasn't. How long did that last? Uh. Let's say ninety to ninety seven. Oh. Well, we weren't married that whole time. We got married yeah. in that in that yeah. window, and uh, but then uh, yeah, then then that was done. And ninety for me, ninety seven to two thousand were like my that's my crazy years. I, I was pretty much back in New York City, back and forth, but 
in New York a lot of the time going out and just really raging. And we were touring too. The band was still touring. But you're like, no, no, not going to be tied down. Let's just No, and that's when I started drinking. Like I started drinking really in 1997. And that wasn't your primary thing? No, before that, I never. I would pick my spots once in a while. Yeah, right. Drink beer or wine, but oh, but you started hitting it, huh? Oh, hardcore, ninety-seven. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, big Uh, time. Bottles of whiskey. Oh really? Yeah. Well, Daryl, Daryl from Pantera taught me how to do that. (laughs) That's a long story, but yeah, he literally, he was, he was my Yoda. I was his Padawan, and after the second divorce, Daryl was like, "I'm going to teach you how to really." Well, I asked him. I said to him, "I said, hey man, because Pantera asked us to come out on tour with them." For a few months. This is at the end of 97. And uh, I said to him, hey, I made an adult decision at the age of 33. I'm going to learn how to drink. I want you. To, I'm going to drink whatever you drink. He's like, are you drunk now? Like, it's like, no, dude, I'm, I'm being totally serious. Like, I, I want to learn at the hands of the master. Oh, that's interesting. You didn't have the compulsion, but you were like, I, it's time to live hard. I needed to make a change in my life. And that was <laughs> I felt like I I had I had failed twice uh-huh. in relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, the band was not doing well at that time in the late '90s. We weren't doing so well. It was really really hard for most metal at that point in time. And the draw uh, was drifting. And, everything, yeah. And when, and, and when did uh, John Bush come on? '93, '92. He joined, and his first record with him, Sound of White Noise, came out in '93. What happened with Joey? Which did great. Yeah, but. But then by 95, the next album, like, everybody disappeared. I don't know where everybody You like the sound of White Noise? I love that record. Yeah. Yeah. And what happened with Joey? You know, again, like I said, I apologize. You know, I just truly didn't have the patience anymore. Um, Lead singers are hard for you, huh? (laughs) They were. Yeah. Yeah, they were, but not anymore. Yeah. I, I think my biggest problem was I was writing the words. Right. And I couldn't, I couldn't deal with the fact anymore that someone else was singing my lyrics, but I couldn't sing. There's right. no way I could be the singer of. Anthrax. You were that that was it, that's what it was about. I think didn't... it really, really did come down to that that I that I that just you, couldn't stand it anymore. But you felt it was your your emotions, or you you didn't like the way they were phrasing it. I mean, what what both was... both like people that that I you know that it's just these are my words, these are my feelings, it's my emotions. And you're not, you're not me. Yeah, you know. Interesting. And, and and yes, and then even like learning the songs and like hearing them back, like that's not how I hear it in my head. No, no, like this, like this, like this. But you this, had like no this. solution. And no, there wasn't. My solution at the time was turning around to the rest of the band and saying it's either him or me. I pulled the same shit Neil Turbin pulled years before that. I said I can't do this again. We need to make a change. Yeah. And it, and it wasn't just me holding a gun. Everyone was on the same page. Right. Everyone felt like what we had done as Anthrax in the 80s into the early 90s, we had already moved past that. We were ready to kind of, the sound was changing. If you listen to Persistence of Time, musically, that record has more to do with Sound of White Noise, yeah. the first John Bush record, than it has to do with State of Euphoria, the, the previous right. Anthrax album. Musically, we were already right. going somewhere else, but Joey, for us, I guess at the time, felt like, He's not representing us anymore. He was the 80s. Uh, of course. Exactly. Of course, I spent a year of my life writing a book and like looking back on that time and really kind of getting back into those shoes. And, you know, we should have given the guy a shot. Why we didn't give him the shot, I really don't know why we weren't able to. Because I even remember, I remember Johnny Z, our manager, he was, are you sure? Are you sure 
this is the decision you want to make. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know, well, what, was, did you feel pressure because of the, you know, like even the, the nature of a front man stylistically? I wanted it changing. to be harder. Right. I wanted what I wanted. I couldn't do it, but I wanted someone who could almost, you know, someone just, uh, I wanted yeah. it to be harder. I didn't want Lemmy. Right. You know, I didn't want it to sound like that. I right. just wanted it to be harder. And John brought it? Yeah. John brought it. Yeah. For sure. And and so so that was a change. You know, you went you went deeper and harder, and it sort of you know it it was um, metal itself. I guess because of what because of uh, grunge and everything else that you know there was a, a more alternative hard rock thing happening that it swung the pendulum back. It's, you know, trust me, I've thought a lot about this. Yeah, because like I said, Sound of White Noise did great. Yeah. Out of the box, you know, gold record, and then you know went on to sell platinum record, and yeah. we were playing big shows. And then in '95, when the next record, Stomp Four Four Two, is coming out, Electra went through a shift. We had signed to Electra as well, so yeah. it's a crazy big deal for Sound of White Noise. We so ended up at Electra anyway. Yeah, and uh, Stomp is coming out. Electra had gone through a huge upheaval. Everyone we worked with was gone. Bob oh. Krasnow, who was the head, he was a true record man. He was gone, and. They bring in this woman, Sylvia Roan, who she signed in Vogue. She was yeah. really successful with that. And, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, uh, it's weird how the record business works. It's, yeah, like, and, it's just product, man. Yeah. And the first thing she said to our manager when he walked in to have a meeting about yeah. starting to set up the new Anthrax album, she like drops the contract on the desk and basically says, like, I never would have signed this band. I would never would have done this deal. What, yeah. are, what are we doing? Yeah. Like, what's going to happen? He's right. Like, oh, a like, great way to start a meeting. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I could only you think like, there like I, what the fuck? I, I I learned over the I used to not be able to point the finger at myself. Right. For sure. Yeah. I would I blamed everyone for everything for a yeah, long yeah. time in my yeah. life. But for a long time in my life I've been able to point the finger at myself. And it, I will not say that we made a record that was terrible. It's not because of the record we made. Stomp 442. Yeah. yeah. We did not make a record that it's not like we made a jazz record and we alienated our audience right. or something. You know, um, uh, I I just think it was a number of factors, uh, one of which uh, it's so cliche to blame your label. But look, they just pulled the rug out from under us. They did zero. Right. Zero. I mean, Sound of White Noise, the w first week it came out in 93, we sold like a hundred and something thousand copies in a week of that record. Stomp comes out two years later and in the first week does like 29,000. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, it goes on to sell about 150. Sound of White Noise goes plays a platinum record. How did you go from like a million to 150 thousand in yeah. two years? Like yeah. what? Like but yeah, those fans couldn't have all disappeared. Yeah. Like what? I still to this day don't have the answer. And to what that are the, what was the fans' reaction to Stomp? The people who got it loved it. <laughs> and was the production different? No, no, not so different than Sound of White Noise. A harder record than Sound of White Noise, like some harder yeah. material. Um, we had Dimebag Daryl playing solos on the album. Like it seemed to have everything going for it. Were you and drinking then? No, not yet. Not no, yet. Holy but it was shit. soon after. Well, it was oh, after that because that, that album went in the toilet. Basically, our career started. The the money, my you know, money started to dry up. Careers going in the toilet. Second marriage. Yeah, second marriage is done. We start working on another record that's going to come out in 1998 called Volume Eight. We don't even have a record deal. So yeah, so in ninety end of ninety seven, that's when I like I was like I need to make a change in my life I'm for gonna, the worse. I'm gonna stop being responsible for really. I decided I don't want to be with this guy anymore. 
I don't I don't want to be the captain of the ship. I don't want like I'm going to go fucking crazy for the first time in my life. And I did for years. And how did and what do you think of those records you made like that? What did you make or did you not do any we records? Didn't, I didn't make a record like that. You didn't We didn't really make didn't, a record like that. Volume 8 was just the beginning of it. So I really I wasn't in the depths yet. And did you lose friends? Did you lose any members of your band? Did you No. No, I wasn't an asshole. I'm a fun drunk. Oh, okay. So I wasn't an asshole in that way. I, I was, we just were raging. Like, it wasn't just Doing me. Doing shows, though. Yeah, yeah. John Bush, me, John was my drinking partner in uh -huh. those years. Like, we, we got wet. Like, in the early 90s, John and I got way into Bukowski. Oh, sure, yeah. Right. And like everybody does at some point. Yeah. We got way into Bukowski yeah. and we tried our hardest to, yeah. like, I mean, great. We yeah, weren't totally. fucking whores. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I wasn't yeah. living in East Hollywood, but right. But when it came to booze, we were trying our hardest. Oh yeah. <laughs> and and what, what? How did it? What did it get bad? I mean, did it get tragic? Did some shit go down? What stopped it? No, no. I just I met Pearl in two thousand. Who is a fucking angel? Yeah, but she wasn't then. Well, she was. <laughs> she was, but she wasn't. She out. She could out drink me even now. Still, well, but, I don't. I don't. I only know her from meeting her a few times, yeah. and she's sort of a transcendent type of person. She is absolutely, and I saw that in two thousand when she was in a blue latex rubber cop dress singing backup for Motley Crue, who Anthrax was opening for. And uh, and I was like, love at first sight, but I, I have no game or yeah. nothing. I don't know how to pick up chicks. I, I you know, I, that, that I, I beard, did pretty well in my drunken years because you'd just be out at bars sure. and you're a drunk idiot and you'd- And you're Scott Ian from Anthrax. You'd f end up the yeah. next day being like, oh, who, you know, like- Who the fuck are you? Yeah, exactly. I gotta go. Yeah. Well, I gotta say your beard doesn't imply game right away. No, not at all. <laughs> my my beard basically says, stay the fuck away from me. So, so how did you uh, charm Pearl? We became drinking buddies. Yeah. Um, because um, Motley was a, it was a sober tour at the time for Motley. Oh yeah, and uh, so Pearl and the other backup singer Marty, this other girl, they were hanging out with Anthrax on the Anthrax bus because me and John and and Frankie, our bass player, we yeah. we hit it pretty hard every yeah. night. Yeah, and uh, so they started hanging out with us. So we were drinking buddies for like a month, and then uh, Motley's management calls up and says we need to take. Uh, cutting our pay on the tour because tickets weren't selling so well blah 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 and like we can't we're we're just scraping by as it is on this run and like all right well we can't keep paying you, you you'll just have to go home and uh, bummer i had nothing against nikki or the dudes yeah. in the band I, I get it it's business yeah um i was bummed because i wasn't gonna see pearl for six more weeks till she got home to los angeles i was losing my mind like so i would go to this bar daddy's every night on vine where my my neighbor worked I would like get a ride with him and I would start drinking at five and then drink until the bartenders were done drinking oh. at like four. No other drugs? No, no, oh, never. So no you're drugs. just drinking. And, uh, and then I would walk home like back to, I lived right by Canners at the yeah. time. I would walk back home four miles every day because I think if I didn't walk, I would literally die. Like, oh my I, God. Like I would be so drunk. So you were sort of a beaten man. I mean, you were sort of washed up. I was, but I had this light named Pearl. Yeah. That I had this focus, and I knew she was coming home the beginning of September, and she, she gets home from tour, and uh, I like call her, hey, there's this, these bands playing at the Troubadour tonight, High on Fire and Nebula, like really cool bands. You want to go? It's like sure, you know. Yeah. I had written, I, sorry, I had written her a letter. Yeah. 
Because uh, I had never told her. Yeah, on paper, wrote her a letter and FedExed it <laughs> yeah. to her on tour. Yeah. Like, and I told her how I felt about oh. her. And then she never answered that. Oh, We would talk all the time, but did she you never- write, Did you write a drunk? She never- No, no. This was, was like a really heartfelt four-page- you're like, like, you're it? Yeah, like, I'm in love with you. Oh. Like, and then we would still talk, but she never brought up the letter, and I didn't have the balls to ask her about the letter, and I just figured out, oh, we're friends, that's it. We'll yeah. be friends, I'm crushed, you yeah. know, but we'll be friends. At least I can be friends with this rad lady. And uh, and we went out to High on Fire that night at the Troubadour. I brought my friend Kenny with me, because I was, like, nervous. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, But we just, you know, we just fell right back into the same thing. We We ordered some drinks, and... Hung out and watched some bands and like hung out that night and then like want to say what are you doing tomorrow night nothing you want to hang out and we've been that was September 9th, two thousand we've been together ever since you never like, brought up the letter oh no of course I did oh. yeah uh, eventually what about the letter yeah. and and she told me she said it was so amazing <laughs> I, every time I would try and respond or write. I was trying to respond and write a letter back. She goes, I would just tear it up. I couldn't, I like, I was so blown away by, by your letter. And, and of course then like me, the idiot, like waiting around to like make a move on her. And like, meanwhile, she, she felt the same way about me. So it obviously, obviously everything worked out because yeah, it's 16 right. years later, but you got a kid. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I finally met the woman I was supposed to meet, uh -huh. but we raged hard. Like those first few years up until about probably sometime in 2003, you know, we were still hitting it hard. And then it's like, you, we kind of like, we probably don't need to go to the Karnak five nights a week anymore. <laughs> like, we're we're really happy. Like, and then it, it, you started, we started to taper off after that. Uh, yeah. And did you, you just slowed it down? Yeah. Just kind of started to slow it down. It's just like, we, we were, I think we were both fulfilled in uh, our lives. And my, lo and behold, Anthrax's career you know, the new millennium came and then things started to turn around again. How we, you know, how those parallels oh. in your personal life and professional life. What so, was the, what was the resurgence? We've come for you all. Yeah. We've come for you all that, that kind of reopened the door for us for whatever reason, whether it was because we wrote better songs or just people, all of a sudden there was a new, a new blood out there. The label get behind you? Bands, yeah. you know, whatever it was, but yeah, yeah. Everything just started oh, to click again. What a great fucking story. And you were able to play Yankee Stadium? Yeah. Yeah, 2011. I mean, that, the worship music thing is the real, you know, that's the real comeback. But um, yeah, yeah. Playing Yankee Stadium in 2011. Who was on like, that tour? That was the big four. With, right. It was Megadeth. Well, who was it? Slayer, Megadeth? Us and Metallica. Yeah. And, you know, Metallica calls up and says... You want to do some big four shows with the the four bands, the four thrash bands, you know? And yes, of course. You were you know. one of the, you're the wait. What, was it that the big coined, three before that, you? No, that phrase was coined at some point in the late '80s by by a writer, where we were known as the big four of thrash metal, the bands that basically brought thrash to the world. I always thought it should have been the big five because there was a band called Exodus out of San Francisco who were just as important. Kirk Hammett from Metallica was actually in Exodus. Mm -hmm. He replaced Dave in Metallica. Um, I always thought Exodus should have been a part of that. And now Gary Holt from Exodus is in Slayer too. So um, it kind of all worked out in a weird way. But so, so the big four thing, you were you were part of that idea from the beginning. Like yeah, that, you yeah, know. yeah, always, yeah. And how was that tour? How did you all get along? Amazing, amazing. Yeah? Metallica, uh, the first big four show was in Poland in 2010. Yeah. And, uh, in Warsaw, and uh, you know, we know there's gonna be like 120,000 people there in this airfield, and and uh, 
So uh, we find out from management the night before the show, Metallica's booked out some restaurant and it's bands only. No wives, no girlfriends, no managers, no entourage, nothing. Just the 17 dudes in the four bands in the room. And my initial reaction was kind of like, well, that's weird. We all know each other's wives and yeah. girlfriends. And Pearl was with me. And, like, you know, it was kind of weird that why, you know, and I remember even calling Kirk going, you know, you're not bringing, you're not bringing Lonnie, you know, like, what's up? And he's like, yeah, we just want it to be the dudes. And, okay, fine, fine. Just to make sure that everything was clear? Well, they just had a really good idea that this is going to be the first time all of us are just going to be in a room together. We've all seen each other. Like I'm, but is Mustaine and, and Megadeth right? But they've seen each other, right, right, and we've right. all, but not all together at right. once. Like we've toured with Slayer, and we've toured with Megadeth. Yeah. And Slayer's toured with Metallica, and we've toured with Metallica. And we've all, but it's never just been all of us together in a room at one time in the history. It never happened, right? So, um, and I, I believe so it was a historical event. Yeah, I may be mistaken, <laughs> but I think it was James. For, I think it was Hetfield's yeah, idea yeah. to do this, and yeah. instantly I understood why because. We're all standing in this this room in this restaurant. Just the dudes. Just the dudes. And man, the vibe was just it was amazing. It was electric to be in that room and everybody just hugging and shaking hands and talking and like just smiling and laughing. And it's like, oh, there's Mustaine and, and like Hetfield and there's Mustaine like I was like standing there like with someone, maybe from Slayer, just looking at like Dave and Kirk like hugging. I'm like, never thought I'd see that. You know, just like <laughs> It was it was an incredible night. Like and it went on for about four hours and then they said, Now why if anyone else wants Call to your come down, come yeah. to the bar or whatever. Yeah. And then girlfriends came and some crew dudes came and and then you know turned into a big party and um but for those four hours it really was like it really made a connection. If you can't see me, it's but beautiful, I got my fingers interlaced, yeah. and uh, we're well, all in your you know fifties. Yeah, we're all in our forties at that point. Yeah, you know, late forties. Yeah, and, and it's like you know, let it go, right? Yeah, exactly. And and then just to to be able to say like, can you fucking believe this? <laughs> like, he, like guys we have all, known for fucking yeah, thirty five years. We were a bunch of asshole kids in nineteen eighty five, like uh-huh. when it all really first started to roll and. Like, you know, just doing whatever we could to, to, to survive and get people to know our bands. And we're going to play to 120,000 people tomorrow, you know, because they love this music that we created. Like, yeah. It was an amazing moment to, to like, to to own that. Yeah. I don't think I ever sat around and thought about that before that night. Like, yeah. Like, to own that and to really feel it. And to be in the room with your peers who were there with and you egos the were beginning. sort of put aside no a little egos. bit. Yeah, yeah, gone. You know, unbelievable. And Metallica really set the tone for all the shows we did on, on those big four. The, that the big four tour, they really set the tone, and it, and it felt like that from that first show in Poland to Yankee Stadium uh, a year or so later. Um, it really felt like that all the way through. They 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 really did it right. And then you did a record with Joey. Yes. Well, talk about parallels in your life like go back to spreading the disease in 19 end of 84 we have a record that's recorded without a singer and we find joey right joey joins the band elevates anthrax to a whole new thing we go out on tour for a year and a half and we become the band that writes among the living we just have nothing to worry about we're just anthrax and we write among the living yeah cut to 2010 we have a record called worship music which is basically done we don't have a singer. Joey joins the band again. We go out on tour with Megadeth and Slayer in the fall of 2010. What happened with John? John had already been out since 05. There's a lot of jumping around in yeah. these years. But 
in 05 and 06, we went out and did a reunion tour with Joey and the original lead player, solo, yeah. uh, Dan Spitz. Yeah. Uh, basically, to get us to clear our slate, got us out of a lot of bad deals. We did like a record and a DVD and blah, blah, blah. And that like cleared the slate for us because- Financially? Just, yeah. And, and with contracts? Yeah. Contracts, because yeah. we weren't, we couldn't move forward and make another studio record in the deals we were in. It was something we were going to break up the band. That was right. the choice. And our manager said, if you go do the reunion tour, we still Johnny Z. No, no, different man. Yeah, we could deliver a DVD and a live record, and this will clear the slate for you guys. And it was a business decision that probably could have been made better. But at that point, you know, John said, "Look, I understand you guys got to go do this, but I don't want anything to do with it." We were hoping we could go do a tour in '05 with John and Joey. Yeah, together, right? Make that happen. But John was like, "No way, I, I, I don't want. It. That's stupid." Go yeah. do your thing with Joey. That makes yeah. the most sense for you guys. And, yeah. And go do it. And he was very much a man about the whole thing. And, yeah. Um, but after that, in 06, when the reunion tour thing ended, and, you know, in in my with hubris thinking, we'll just go now back to work with John. You know, he's like, no, I've got a kid now. It's the last. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm done. Yeah. And uh, he's all right, though. Oh, he's great. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. We're still friends. Oh, good. And uh, in 2010, so we've got worship music finished. We don't have a singer. We call Joey Belladonna. We go out on tour, Anthrax, Slayer, Megadeth. We do this big tour around the States. With and, Joey. Yeah, with Joey. We start playing him the new music. We re-record a bunch of it. We rewrite stuff. He goes in the studio, records the vocals, and we listen back and we're like, unbelievable. You know, like this is, <laughs> it's the missing piece. It's the missing piece of the puzzle. Like, uh... And, uh, and then worship music blew up you know put us back on the map in a really big way and and uh so and now here we are beginning of 2016 with a record about to come out you know it's the best thing we've ever done because joey rejoined and then we were able to go out for three years and just be anthrax again and become the band that could write for all kings the new record and it's such a parallel to how it was on spreading it among but it's so sweet that that this stuff, like you know, that these changes and and with you and with the band and with everything else, that this full circle thing and this sort of uh, amazing respect, you know, from the other bands, from the fans, and, right. and and then you know to be rejoined, you know, by by the singer that made you guys, it's it's a it's a beautiful story. It really is. You're still in a functioning, relevant band, right? Well, you exactly. didn't you didn't become a fucking monster. No, I know, or a joke. <laughs> Worse. Well, that's why I didn't realize I had a story to tell until I started going out and doing my talking shows. Because mm -hmm. I've always, in a sense, I'm a frustrated stand-up. I yeah. can't write jokes. Right. But I could tell a fucking story. Yeah, yeah. And in 2012, I got this offer in London to come tell stories. I was like, oh, fuck it. I'm doing that. Because I, I, I would see Henry Rollins do it for yeah, years. Yeah, and yeah. I'd be like, hours. I would love to try that someday. Yeah. But never, never was out there actively pursuing it. And then it fell in my lap. So it was the night before we were starting a tour with Motorhead at the end of 2012. And I, I got up at this this venue in uh, in London. It was billed as rock stars say the stupidest things or something yeah. like that. And uh, and I you know I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew I had great stories. And I got on stage and I, I opened my show with this. Uh, it was like four in the morning and I woke up in a sweat, like in a panic, thinking like, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I can't. How am I going to go on stage and just talk to people? Where's right. my guitar? You know. Yeah. And uh, how do I open? What do I just walk on stage? It's not like I have jokes. Like, what am I going to do? <laughs> Hi. Like, how are you guys? Like, what? How do you even start the show? And right. And then I I got this idea immediately. Like somehow, what if I 
what if I acted like I was reading from a book and people thought it was my book and and uh, but it wasn't. It was and it would be something like that would be so not my story. And I called my buddy uh, John Wiederhorn, who's a rock writer and uh, and worked on this book with me, my book. And I was like, hey, what's a book like Motley Crue, like The Dirt, you know, like super sex, drugs, like heroin, all that kind of shit, something like that's so far away from what I do. And uh, he goes, well, you can't read something from The Dirt to an audience because most people have read that book. But check out Anthony Kiedis's book from the Chili Peppers because your audience definitely hasn't read his book. Yeah. They don't care. And uh, I go online. I find it. I get the book. First chapter, he started, he's writing about sitting in my house in the Hollywood Hills and my reverie is interrupted by some fine lady who comes in and starts setting up her works and injects me and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, this is fucking genius. Yeah. So I walk on on stage. I don't say a word. I sit down on a stool. There's just a little pin spot on me. Yeah. And I've got it. I type the whole thing out into my phone. Yeah. And I sit there and just start reading this yeah. thing. Yeah. It's super boring, just yeah. deadpan reading yeah. this. And she injects me and I start feeling the familiar warmth. And, and, and I could see people who've known me for years out in the audience, I could see them like, what the fuck? <laughs> Like, I had no idea. He, when was he a junkie? Yeah. Right? Right? So I finish, I finish the, this little short tale. Yeah. It's like three minutes. And I, and I finish it. You know, I lay back on the couch and I pass out, whatever, however it ends. And, uh, and I just kind of get really quiet. And I take the mic off the stand and I stand up. I'm like, you fucking people thought that was about me? <laughs> fucking assholes. That's Anthony Kiedis. And I get this giant like sigh of relief and laugh from the crowd. And then I own them for two and a half hours. Really? And it was it was the best. I don't know that I have I had ever felt that high on stage ever even in the band. I walked off stage after two and a half hours of talking. And I was standing in the dressing room like with this smile, the Joker smile on my face. And I said to my agent, I got to do more. I got to do more. So we booked a UK tour. Like six months later, I toured the UK with it. And I've done like four tours and I, I fucking love doing that. But in the midst of all that, I started writing out my stories because I was doing these talking shows. Yeah. And I got about 100 pages of shit written. And I'm like, I actually have a story to tell here. I've got a book. You yeah. Know? And then that's that's kind of how the book came together. That's great. And you had a baby. Yeah. How old is that thing kid ever? He's four and a half. That's yeah. amazing. And and Pearl is a, a rocker too, right? She, she sure is. Sings. Yeah. Sings her ass off. She's finishing a record right now. I get to like, when I can, I get to play in her band. And then we also have this other thing, Motor Sister, that we do, uh, which is a rock thing with another singer, Jim Wilson. And um, it's just all music all the time. And her father, it. your father-in-law is Meatloaf. My father-in-law is Meatloaf. Well, look, man, I'm glad we did this because we, you know, we see each other all the time. We never got to talk. It was yeah. fucking great. Yeah. yeah, I got, you know, I got moved. It's very touching. You know where I got choked up? <laughs> where? The FedEx letter. That got me. I, I still have it, too. I've <laughs> got the letter, dude. I'll never, that's like, I feel like that letter saved my life in a weird way. I could I could actually say like that, it completely saved my life. It's beautiful, man. Yeah. Thanks for talking, Scott. Cheers. That's it. That is our show. I love that. I, I loved learning. I love talking to Scott. Anth again, Anthrax's new album, For All Kings, is available now. Scott's book, I'm the Man, the story of the guy from Anthrax, is just out in paperback. Uh, and the new record is great, by the way. It's great. What else? Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. Uh, I need to, uh, I was told I need to push my Kansas City dates. When are they? They're in April. I've got three dates coming up, and then I'm going to have to take the summer to write a new hour so I can tour in the fall. But I do have a, I do have some dates, and I'm not saying it's not going to be new material. I, you know, I always sort of 
do something. But uh, Friday, April 8th, I'll be at the Mission Creek Festival at the uh, Englert Theater in Iowa City, Iowa. Uh, April 9th, I'll be at the Rococo Theater in Lincoln, Nebraska. And April 10th, Harvest Bank Theater at the Midland in Kansas City, Missouri. Look, I've never played the Midwest. Let's not make me think uh, I knew better. So uh, if, you, if you're a Kansas City fan, Kansas City, Missouri fan, uh, April 10th, I'll be there. Uh, and I'm not going to play guitar today because it's late. I have to get up early. Um, I'm going to be um, working uh, with some uh, exciting actors tomorrow. I'll tell you about it Thursday. All right? Boomer lives! <laughs> <laughs>